0: Mark, and in your study Bible, that's page 1600, also happens to be the second book in your Bible, Mark chapter 1, last time we saw that Jesus comes to us, Uh, He came in the flesh, He came as a fulfillment of prophecy, and He uh, came in such a way that those of us who are struggling, feel like we're out in the wilderness, can easily identify with Him. Remember, Mark is writing to believers in Rome who are certainly struggling a lot. Uh, they're in the wilderness. They're having to worship in, in the tombs because there's no other safe place to worship. You can go visit those tombs today. And uh, John, or Mar, or John Mark is telling those Christians that they have a Savior who understands completely. He went out in the wilderness. Furthermore, he was sent out into the wilderness by the Spirit. And there in the wilderness, he faced wild animals, just like the Roman Christians were facing the lions in the Colosseum. And also, when Jesus went out into the wilderness, He had angels minister to Him, just like we have angels minister to us, even when we're in our wilderness. And sometimes it takes a wilderness to understand and experience the fullness of God's grace and love toward you. So, don't despise the wilderness. Some of you guys are in it right now. Don't despise it. It's painful, but it can be God's place for you, just like it was for Jesus when He went out. 40 days in the wilderness and was ministered to by God's angels. And then Jesus comes out of the wilderness, now prepared for his ministry. We're going to pick up and find out what happens uh, when we get here to verses 14 through 20. We're just going to look at these seven verses because they're chock full with good things for us this morning. Because Jesus comes out of the wilderness, begins his ministry by making a, a profound announcement. And in the midst of that announcement, he makes some exhortations and then he issues a call. A call. And uh, every one of us need to hear that call this morning. Let's look at uh, Mark chapter 1 beginning with verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw Jane, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Amen. I don't know if you guys saw it a few weeks ago, but in USA Today there was an article about a a guy out on the west coast who's developed this very prosperous business. And uh, the business is that he charges you four thousand dollars or somewhere around that figure and you spend the weekend with him and he coaches you on how to pick up girls. Did you see that article? Some of you might need to pick that up, I don't know. <laughs> four thousand bucks and he tells you how to do it and of course there's you know little tips like you never look down, you know, when you're talking to a girl. You get down on her level, you know, all that kind of stuff. And one of the guys who was a real champion who had passed the seminar with flying colors and, of course, what they do is they train you and then they take actually take you into the bar and your coach sits back over the corner of the bar and sees how you do. And one of the guys who was the exemplar of a champion, the guy who had really gotten this stuff, he had his pickup line. He came into the bar and came over the girls and had this line. Boy, it's been hard getting back here to the bar because every girl I passed was grabbing me on the butt. Pay $4,000 for that. Now, in my pre-Christian years, I went into a few bars, and I want you to know I never tried that line. Never even thought of it. And I suggest you not try it either. But if you do and it works, you owe me $4,000. So, all of you who are salesmen, or you... Make contacts with people for the first time. You know, you're always thinking about what's my conversation going to be. I hope it's a little bit better than that. What's my first line going to be and and so on. And here in the gospel, you have Jesus coming, giving his first line. And it's nothing like a pickup line. It's nothing like anything you'd ever use. He just makes an authoritative announcement and issues an authoritative call. It's really unbelievable how powerful his message is when he comes to confront us. So, whenever you're, if you're going to confront Jesus Christ this morning, if you're going to consider what he's saying and what he's calling you to do, you're just going to realize that it comes with thundering authority because that's who he is. <clears throat> and for him to, to pretend otherwise would, would be a falsehood. So, let, let's look at, at this. Jesus basically makes two announcements and gives two exhortations. And, they are His sermon. He comes to preach. That's what He's doing. Pre- here, here you have uh, the model of proclamation or preaching. Same word. And uh, He makes an announcement. The difference between preaching and teaching is that uh, preaching is primarily an announcement of something. So you're getting up to make a public announcement uh, if you preach. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Now I want you to notice when He does this. First of all, it's after John the Baptist was put into prison. Uh John has finished his ministry for now. has been taken out of the way. We'll find out later on. Of course, he's beheaded because of his faithful testimony in prison. And then Jesus goes into Galilee. This is very significant because in Jesus' day, Galilee was known as that place where all the Gentiles gathered. It was a taxing station. It was a commerce station. It was a crossroads. Lots of pagans up there. It wasn't quite as pure and pristine as... Jerusalem, and the southern region of Judea. And so Mark is making the point to the Roman Christians, the Gentile Christians. From the very beginning, Jesus' intention was to reach all of you. Yes, He came first of all to the house of Israel, but from the very beginning, He went in the highways and byways of life to reach every one of you. And, And I say the same thing to us this morning. It doesn't matter what your background is, where you come from, Jesus came to reach you. And not just a small group of people. So he goes into Galilee. So he goes into a place that kind of represents the crossroads of the world. Where all kinds of people are there. And they were. And he makes this profound announcement. Now let's look at the two things that he proclaims about the kingdom. First of all, he says, the time has come. So he is telling us that after 400 years of waiting... After 2,000 years of promises, 400 years since the last prophet, which would be Malachi, the time has now come. It's ripe. It's pregnant with meaning. Right now is the big moment. It's kind of like, uh, you know, you've been dating her for a good while and you, you really want to marry her. And you know what? You need to know when the time has come. <laughs> the moment is right. Uh, to, ask, to pop the question. Get out on that knee, hand her the ring, and ask her to marry you. You know, And, and you, everything kind of builds toward that moment. You can feel it coming. It's the big night. And, uh, and uh, that's the way it is when Jesus comes talking about the kingdom. The time is right now. And what's interesting, when you look in the Scriptures about your relationship with your Creator, He's telling you that right now is the time. Uh, Paul says today is the day of salvation. It's, it's pregnant with meaning. All of history has come to this moment in your life. The time is now. So he says the time has come. And secondly, he makes an announcement and says the kingdom of God is near. Or the, in other places, it'll say the kingdom of God is at hand. It's just right here before us. So uh, he uses this phrase kingdom of God. Now, if you were to turn in a concordance, and of course you've got a, a limited concordance in the back of your study Bible, but you'll see that the word kingdom is one of the, the most popular words used in the Gospels. In fact, if you were to ask, what is the sort of paradigm that Jesus uses to describe what's going on in his ministry? It's clearly the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven in Matthew. Same thing. And it's a kingdom. Well, we know what a kingdom is. A kingdom has a king and the king has a people who live in a place who are under his rule. So a king has a people in a place under his rule. It's His dominion. And so the basic paradigm of the four, of the three Gospels especially is the kingdom of God, His rule, His reign, His dominion has come in the person of Jesus Christ. Now it's interesting, with the Apostle Paul, you don't find him using the concept kingdom very much in his epistles because he just uses in Christ. And it's the same thing. If you're in Christ, you're in the dominion of the kingdom. You're under his rule. And Paul uses that sort of language instead of kingdom. Some people also speculate that wherever Paul was going, it was, it was inflammatory enough just to speak of Jesus Christ as Lord. Because Caesar was also proclaimed as Lord. Now if he goes and says there's a kingdom, he's going to get all those churches in trouble and probably have them more persecuted than they were before. So whatever the reason, Paul doesn't use the same kingdom language that Jesus uses. But Jesus is primarily in Israel. And He is communicating something to them that they will understand. Now, I handed out this morning this sheet that says the great story of the Bible, the Kingdom of God. I'd like for you to look at it with me for a moment because what you'll see is that we, we think of the Kingdom primarily as a Gospel concept. But guys, this goes all the way back to the beginning. The whole story of the Bible is the Kingdom of God. Uh, You can see that it starts in Genesis 1 and 2 with the kingdom being established. God is the one who is king over the entire creation. Genesis 1 is about what the king has made, and his Sabbath is his enthronement day. After six days of labor and creating everything in his dominion, he now is enthroned on the Sabbath day. And he has two vice regents, Adam and Eve who are keeping His garden because every royal palace had royal gardens. And the Garden of Eden is the Garden of God where His vice regents uh, will keep the garden for Him and maintain it. It's His garden. And then, of course, you have the kingdom forsaken in Genesis 3 where uh, Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden because they rebelled against the king. Then you have the kingdom promised with Abraham. Do you see the kingdom language there? That He calls Abraham. He promises him a mighty nation. Promises him a place. And promises him a dominion. I will bless you so that you will bless all the nations. So He has His people in His place, the Holy Land, uh, under His dominion. Exercising His dominion around the world. So you see this sort of kingdom idea that comes up even when Abraham is called. And then you have the kingdom enslaved off in Israel, and the kingdom redeemed. The people are taken through the Red Sea and they're brought to Mount Sinai. And what are they given? The laws of the kingdom. They're constituted as a nation. And they're prepared now to go into the promised land so that they can be the kingdom foreshadowed. They go into the promised land through Joshua and they take over the land. Here again, you have a people in the kingdom land under God's rule and God is the king over all of Israel in that land. And then you have the kingdom exiled because once again, they rebelled against the king. And they're exiled into Babylon and also into Assyria for that matter in 722 B.C. And then what happens? They're regathered. What do they do? They regather into the land. And you find in Ezra and Nehemiah all these genealogies. There's the people and their genealogy. They're the children of the king. So they're his people back in His land under His dominion. And then you have the kingdom expected. So for all those years after they're regathered, you have this tremendous vision. Because it didn't seem the kingdom didn't quite get consummated under David and his sons. And so you have this vision now. And you pick it up in Jeremiah where there will be a new kingdom where the law will be written on our hearts and the great son of David will come and rule. So you have this kingdom expected now for hundreds of years. And then when you come to that next to the last one kingdom inaugurated, here you have the presence of the Messiah. The Messiah comes as David's greatest son and he now comes to inaugurate the time of the kingdom. Now this is what all the Israelites have been waiting for. They were aware of this chart. Believe me. They knew what the kingdom was and they knew they were God's people in God's land and here comes Jesus Christ to inaugurate the kingdom. And that means that, once again, He's going to gather His people and they're going to have a land one day. Jesus talks about it. Uh, and, of course, Revelation tells us about the, the land, the new Jerusalem, that will come out of heaven. And we are completely under His rule. But we're only inaugurated. We're not consummated. So the, the important thing about understanding Jesus' time and this epoch is that He inaugurates the kingdom it will only be consummated when He comes back. The King comes back. And when He comes back, we will have His people gathered in through repentance and faith in His land, the New Jerusalem, under His dominion. will be a kingdom. That's what we're going to be in the last day. So you can see that when Jesus picks up this language, He is using the language of the ages that all of the Israelites would have understood. And that's the reason Jesus, as a Jew Himself, Speaking primarily to other Jews, he uses kingdom language and picks up on this. So the first first proclamation has two points to it. The time is now, and this is all about the kingdom that is coming in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what does this mean for us, of course? Well, we're going to see that if Jesus Christ is the King, and if He does bring the inauguration of the last days with Him, brings with Him the kingdom, then there are some amazingly profound implications for every hearer in this room, as we'll see in this text. Now, we'll begin with this. He not only makes the the preachment or the proclamation, but He also makes two exhortations. The first one is repent. If Christ is the King, and if He has come, and He has come to inaugurate the fulfillment of the kingdom, this is the time to get your act together basically what he's saying. Turn from all your foolishness. Turn from your, your devotion to other kingdoms and other kings. Rid yourself of your other ambitions about establishing your own kingdom because any kingdom is going to be a rival kingdom. And if it's a rival kingdom to the Messiah, you got yourself a big problem. So he's basically saying repent, rid yourself of all these rival kingdoms and fiefdoms Rid yourself of everything that would be in disobedience to the king because he is great and he is powerful and he is here. So, how do I do that? Why don't we turn over to, to Luke, the next book in your Bible, Luke chapter 3, and you'll get a little example of this when John the Baptist was pre- preaching repentance, and he had people ask him the same question. They said, What should we do? This is Luke chapter 3, page 1648. Luke chapter 3, verse 10. The people asked John the Baptist, What should we do then? And John answered, verse 11 The man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Isn't that interesting? Repentance means stop hoarding. That's huge. Stop hoarding! You say, I thought the whole idea. I thought that's the way you played the game. The one who ends up with most toys wins. And Jesus is saying, Yeah, I know. That's the way everybody thought the game was played until the King came. And when you know that the King has come and He's really the King, the rules of the game change. If you have two tunics, give one of them away. And you don't hoard your goods. You're looking for ways to exercise justice and redistribution of things according to mercy and not dog-eat-dog. Keep reading. Tax collectors. Oh, boy, this is going to be interesting. Tax collectors, the worst people, known as the worst sinners in the whole society, they started asking this dangerous question. They came to be baptized and said, Teacher, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. What? How do you expect tax collectors to make a living? Tax collectors were always taking as much as they could possibly take. And they, they used extortion to do it. That's how they made their living, Lord. And he says, no, nope, it's not the way you play the game. Not if you realize the kingdom has come and you're ridding yourself of everything contrary to the kingdom. You don't collect any more than you have to. Well, this ought to be good. Uh, soldiers, people who kill people, ask him, what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. This next one is going to get you. Be content with your pay. <laughs> so I guess soldiers were notorious for extorting money using their power and their prestige and their office to extort money. And when They didn't like somebody. They just haul them into court and make false accusations against them. What could a poor Jew do if a Roman soldier was accusing him of something and said he saw him do something that he didn't do? And Jesus is saying, look, here's what repentance means. Cut all that out. Take the law of God that you're aware of in the Scriptures, the Old Testament. Take the ethics that that you're aware of there and put them into practice because you know that Jesus Christ is the King and He has come to bring His kingdom. So you start living... A kingdom life. And you live by the rules of the kingdom and not the rules of business school or law school or anything else. as your ultimate guide. But it's the guide of the kingdom. So first thing is repent. Turn from that other junk. Let me say, some guys kind of want to get involved. They don't want to be left out completely of the church and you know, of spiritual things. They, they, You know, we all know we've got a spiritual side. Sometimes... We covered up pretty well but down deep inside there's something there that resonates with the idea there's probably a god and there's something I should be thinking about there so we kind of want to put our toe in the water but we also want to just still play by the rules of the game as we got them somewhere else that advances King me instead of King Jesus and what Jesus is saying is you can't you can't understand the kingdom you can't enter the kingdom you can't enjoy the kingdom until you let go of that stuff And I know guys that will go on for years and years and years, and they'll try to play both sides of the street. And all it does is it makes them miserable. What Jesus is saying is, look, the first thing you've got to get right is repent. You've got to leave this stuff, this way of thinking, this self-centered lifestyle, and you've got to leave it behind. And if you don't make a commitment to do that, then you're not going to be able to enjoy being a subject of the king. Now, does that mean you can do it perfectly? No. But it means that you can change the trajectory of your life, make new commitments, make new accountability structures in your life where people are helping you go from this to this. Then he says believe the Gospel. Repent and believe the good news. This is huge. Because I know some guys who have it basically figured out. Oh, Christians don't lie. Christians don't cheat. Christians don't Still, okay, let me see if I can gear it up. See if I can live that kind of lifestyle and then I can get along with these guys and these guys. That's called legalistic repentance. It's repentance. It's moralistic. It's simply trying to follow a code book by your own power. It doesn't work. It too just makes you miserable. And it makes you a big fat hypocrite because you're pretending to abide by the whole life of the kingdom, but you're not. You're just trying to conform outwardly to image-manage, either to feel better about yourself or to impress somebody else. That's moralistic repentance. Here is life-giving repentance. You turn from the stuff that is self-centered that's basically eating your lunch and is going to destroy you, and you turn to Him and to the Gospel. You actually believe it. You believe that as a sinner... You can be completely forgiven for all your sins because the King has laid down His life for you and paid the price for your sins. You're free, you're loved, you're cherished, and you have eternal life. That's exciting in case you hadn't noticed. Who wants this other trash? This is rubbish. Paul says, I left all my degrees and all my awards and all of the things I used to be proud of. They became trash to me. Actually, he uses the word manura. That's what, it, that's what that means to me because I have Christ. That's what I want. Christ. So all this other stuff doesn't mean that much to me anymore. It's only a method by which I can carry out the principles of the kingdom in this life. Yes, you need money. Yes, you need food and clothing. It's an instrument to carry out the will of God in this world. That's what it's become to Paul. Not anything that tells you who he is. You'd never know who the Apostle Paul was. But, hey, Paul, how much money do you make? Hey, Paul, how many lands do you own? Hey, Paul, how many people do you manage? Do you think he gave a rip about any of that? That was rubbish to him. What was meaningful to him was the kingdom of Jesus Christ and his relationship with Christ. So you have to do both. You leave the old life, but you embrace the new. Now some guys, on the other hand, you know some are moralistic. They just try to turn by their own strength, but they really haven't turned to Christ. On the other hand, some love to profess what they believe and tell you about it all the time. But they're still cheating you like crazy. You don't trust them. You know, I've heard some of you say in business, first time somebody tells you that you ought to do business with them because they're Christian, button in your back pocket and run for your life. People manipulate all the time. They try to use the name of Christ. They try to use their profession. And they say they're in love with Christ. They even go to church and sing the hymns but they're living the same old way they used to except for a few image management principles. That's called antinomianism, anti-lawism. So they say they have a certain faith, but there's no repentance in their life. It too is dreadful. It can fool you as well as other people, but it does not fool God. And He knows whether you've really made a change in your life. So He says the time has come. The kingdom of God is right here at hand. We're right on the precipice of the completion of the film of the kingdom of God because the king is here. Here's what you need to do about it repent and trust the gospel. Believe it. Put your full weight on it. Live it out. Take the kingdom of God as your own. Become the subject of the king and act like a devotee of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah himself. So that is the big preachment. And let me say when you listen to preaching these days, you ought to be looking for two things. An announcement and an exhortation. And basically what makes Christian preaching, some of you in this room are preachers, what makes Christian preaching is you're announcing the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. The kingdom has come. He is here. He makes Himself available to all of us. And then we exhort. We must turn and embrace Him. You see, every... Every sermon, that's what makes a sermon distinctive from just a theological discourse or a Sunday school lesson or something like that. It's an announcement with an exhortation. You get it right here with the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll find, in, in, if you turn over uh, in your study Bible to verse 35, you'll find that Jesus was praying early one morning. We'll look at this text a little later. He left the house and went off to a solitary place and he prayed there. And Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. In other words, Peter comes to him and says, Jesus, what are you doing praying? People want to talk to you. You're the big show, man. Come on. Peter never got it. Jesus replied, look what he says. He doesn't chide Peter at this point. He just says, okay, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. Look at this. That is why I have come. Isn't that interesting? You know, if you were to ask most of us this morning, tell me, why did Jesus come? Oh, He came to seek and to save the lost. Or He came to lay down His life as a ransom for many. Or we'd say all kinds of things. But I I doubt that many of us would have said, oh, why did He come? To preach. (laughs) That's what Jesus said. At least there there are many reasons why He came. But one of them clearly was to go through this land of Galilee, from synagogue to synagogue and from street to street, preaching not only to Jews but to Gentiles. And He came to proclaim the kingdom. This is the big idea. And He became, he came to exhort us so that we might benefit from everything He has to offer. He didn't come as an angry preacher, although He had reason to be anger, angry and He was angry at times. But He came as a preacher who is making a grand announcement that would benefit anybody who believed it and would conform to it. So Jesus comes to preach. Now secondly... He doesn't just come to preach, he comes to call. This is going to be an ordination service too. Uh not just for the disciples but hopefully for each one of us. Jesus comes to call. And for uh, and I want you to notice in the text why I say this. It says that in verse 20, without delay, he called them. And then in verses 16 and 17, of course you see that he he uh he speaks to them. And says, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. He's calling these guys to something. Now, I'd like for us to stop for just a moment and think about this idea of calling. And there's a lot of confusion, both with Roman Catholics and Protestants on this. And I'd like to try to to give you just a real quick historical summary on how this all happened. The word calling in the Latin is vocare, to call from which we get our word, vocation. Now, in the Middle Ages, the church said that there were two ways you could have vocation. You could either be called in the church as a priest, or you could be called in marriage. And they, they both were considered sacraments, and they were both legitimate callings. But the only one who really had Christian calling, in the sense that there would be here in the Scriptures, would be the priesthood. Therefore, they were the ones who could expect to have some assurance that they were really called by God. And there's some sense in which that continues on today because we still speak of missionaries being called and pastors being called. Now, I'm not opposed to that language as long as we understand it as secondary usage of the word calling, which I want to get to in a moment. Now, when the Protestant Reformation came along, there were, many, there were several issues at stake, as you, as you well know. One of them was that Luther was saying, Martin Luther was saying, that it's not just the priests who are called. He said every Christian is called. Aha! This famous phrase, the priesthood of all believers. Now, as you know, Protestants, I've, I've criticized us before, we really don't believe in the priesthood of all believers. We believe in the priesthood of no believers. Uh, we don't confess our sins to one another. We don't encourage one another with absolution of sins. We're not acting like priests. So the Roman Catholics basically are the only ones who really have priests because we don't take what our uh, religious heritage said we had, which was the priesthood of all believers. We should all be hearing one another's sins and, and, and encouraging one another in forgiveness. But Luther said that the Bible suggests we all have calling. Now what happened as a result of that is what we call the Protestant work ethic. Where did the Protestant work ethic come from? From the idea that it's not just the priest who is called, but the banker and the farmer and the craftsman. They all have their callings, we say. Now, what has happened since the Protestant Reformation through secular commercialism and the emerging middle class? This is a secular movement that we all now speak of our callings. So if I'm a lawyer, I'm called to be a lawyer. If I'm a banker, I'm called to be a banker. And we say to to men, look, guys, you need to find out what your calling in life is. Now, once again, there's some legitimacy to the language. But it's very confusing because it's not directly biblical language. Neither the Roman Catholic view nor the Protestant view. When you look into the New Testament and this word calling, you'll find it used in two cases and two cases only. Two instances. One is the calling to be an apostle. Of which there are none in this room that I see anywhere, (laughs) with the possible exception of Robert Taylor. (laughs) The second usage of calling in the New Testament is to be a Christian. Ah a Christian. Gentlemen, that's your calling. Is to be a Christian. Not to be a banker. Not to be an architect, not to be a lawyer, not to be an engineer, not to be a preacher. The calling is to follow Christ. Let me give you some examples. Let's just look at the Pauline epistles on this word of calling. Keep your finger there, Mark, because we're coming back. But look at Romans chapter 1. Let's just march through the epistles for just a moment on this one word. You'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. This is, these are just some examples of how the word is used over and over again in the Scriptures. In Romans chapter 1, at the beginning of the letter, he says, verse 5, through Him and for His own name's sake. This is page 1809. We receive grace and apostleship to call people, there's the word, from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. So they're calling Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith. And then look at verse 6. And you also are among those who are called... To belong to Jesus Christ, this is your calling to belong to Jesus Christ. That's the vocation. Now, I, I now use these words differently. Vocation is this. occupation is what you do for a living. Turn over to first Corinthians, the next next book in your Bible, first Corinthians chapter one, you pick this up on uh, page eighteen forty three. And here, Paul says in verse 9, God, who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. So you are called into fellowship with His Son. That's your vocation, is to be called into Him. And then look at First uh, Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians would be page 1939. And here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, well, let's back up to verse 10. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, And urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into His kingdom and glory. So there's your vocation. It's a vocation into the kingdom. Taking your place in the kingdom. And it's a vocation to get to glory. You're called to glory. So, if you're in the kingdom, you're as called to glory now as you're ever going to be. You're called. You have a calling upon your life to be glorified. There's no higher calling than that, so don't trade it for being for some occupation. And then look at uh, look at First Peter. You get several instances here. We'll look at a couple of them where this language of calling is also used with Peter, who of course was along the Sea of Galilee, and he himself was called. Uh, page 2016, 17, 18, right in there. And let's look at First Peter, chapter two. And here Peter is describing the church. This is page 2018. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. So we have a vocation of light from darkness. And look at verse 21. He's talking about how we are to endure hardship. To this, verse 21, you were called. So you're called to hardship. And you're called to suffer it in a way that resembles Jesus Christ. That's your vocation. is to display Christ in hardship. Look at how He uses it in chapter 3, verse 9. He says, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called. So you were called to respond to insult with kindness. That's your vocation. To follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Make it your vocation. And then in chapter 5, verse 10, once again, Peter's using this language over and over again. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will Himself restore you and make you strong and so on. These are just some examples. So you can see that in uh, apostolic language, this is kind of a technical word for being a believer. A called one. So the reason is, that's exactly how you become a believer. You get called. So what we'd like for every man here to experience this morning is the call of Christ on your life. An experience of vocation. Just as exciting as when you decided to go to graduate school and you decide to be that kind of take that occupation how exciting it was to enter into this this is more exciting entering into the vocation of promoting the kingdom of god belonging to him called to suffer like him called to glory in the ultimate end so we are called now notice three things about this vocation first of all he calls us to come to him not to a religion Come and learn of Judaism with me, said the rabbi. Come to learn of the Westminster Confession of Faith, said the Presbyterian preacher. Come and get baptized in the right way, said the Baptist. Come and give up all your drinking and gambling, said the Methodist. Well, that's actually pretty good. (laughs) But here... He just says, come and follow me. Do you see the calling? It's not to a creedal formulation as much as, I'm a Presbyterian. Shoot, I love creeds. And they're important. But that's not what I'm called to. I love orders of worship and liturgy. I'm not called to the prayer book. I'm not called to a particular denominational label. I'm not even called to a particular political party. I'm not called to an certain lifestyle or a way of looking or a culture. I'm called to a person. Called to an intimate relationship with Him. He's to be my best friend. That's the calling. Make the King your most trusted friend, your best friend, your closest friend, your most intimate ally. That's the calling. And I want to ask you this morning. Are you ready for that calling? Because that's what He's calling you to. It's very close. He says, "You leave what you're doing, you come, get with me. Walk right here with me. Observe me, talk with me, walk with me, spend time with me, eat together, sleep together, camp out together, minister together, die together. Come on. You know those of you who have served in the military service, if you want to you know, if we were to ask you, what was your main motive day after day, and it was to protect my brothers? You, know, you build this camaraderie. It's a esprit de corps. And the number one commitment is you're going to protect the guy you're serving with. There's a, there's a devotion. And it lives with you a lifetime. Some of you guys have been out of, out of the service for many, many years. And you know, have these reunions. And you go, wow, those are your closest buds. And Jesus Christ is calling you to that kind of relationship with Him. To be a partner in the kingdom. To step up to royalty. And to be His trusted right hand. So it's a call to follow him personally. Secondly, he calls us to follow him and not to lead him. Now, Lord, I want you to take over the powers of evil over here. Now, you, oh, oh, no, over here, Lord, over here. do this one over here. You know, take over this and do this. Now, Lord, do this over here. Sometimes I listen to people pray and it's like they're snapping their fingers. God, do this to them. When disciples who have a calling to fellowship with Christ really know what they're doing, they're on their faces and they're pleading for mercy and they're seeking Him, and they're seeking His will for their lives. And yes, they pray intercessory prayers, but they pray as a follower, not a leader. People who lead like you, we lead vis-a-vis human beings. And we're supposed to. We're supposed to be proactive. One of the most important things about a leader is that you're proactive. You're supposed to be proactive. With respect to men. But with respect to God, you're only reactive. Reactive. We're the ones who are on our knees. We are humbled. We're seeking direction. We're asking for orders. We're asking for forgiveness. We're asking for wisdom. We are seeking Him, the King. We're followers. Truett Cathy said, the most important thing about being a good leader is first of all to be a good follower. And you've got to know who you're following. And everybody likes to follow a leader who also knows how to follow Who likes to be in a home where the the dad thinks he's king of his castle and has no boss? But people who are in a home where a father who knows God and is humbled and knows that he's a man under orders. Now there's a man you like to follow and you like to be like him because he knows how to bow down before the greater power. And that's what it means here. We are called to follow. To be very good followers. Thirdly, He calls us to call others. This thing is supposed to multiply. He says, Come, verse 17, follow Me, and I will make you fishers of men. So, this is your vocation. First of all, to be a follower. And secondly, to be a multiplier. There you have it. And if you have one occupation or another, whether it's being a preacher or being a businessman, I don't see that it makes any difference. You and I have the same vocation with different occupations. And the reason our occupations are different is because God made us differently. We have different circumstances in our life. And we had a different vision of how best to invest our lives for the advancement of our calling, which is the advancement of the kingdom and the glory of the king himself. And you decided that it was to be a businessman. That was the best way for you to advance the kingdom. I decided the best way for me to do it personally was to use my life in pastoral ministry. They're equally valuable. Equally valuable. It makes no difference to the Lord at the end of the day when we all show up before Him. He says, Oh, Wilson, you come on in. You're a preacher. <laughs> Not a very good one, but come on in. You tried. No, he won't say that. We're all His called people. Come on in. I called you to myself. Come fulfill your calling. Equally. makes no difference what your occupation is. And so we're to be multipliers. We're to follow Him and to multiply. That means that you are looking at your business not as a way to stuff religion down other people's throats. You have to be respectful of other people. And in your business, you want to hire all kinds of people who are people who are upstanding, who work hard, who know how to play as a team, all the rest. And that doesn't mean they're all Christians. So your team is made up of many different people. That's fine. But in your business, what's your strategy with your life? Is it to take the personal income that you get and to figure out the best way to leverage it for the kingdom? Or is it to figure out how to have the best vacation and the fattest retirement income you can have? I'm not against vacations nor retirement income. I'm just saying, what's the ultimate mover in your life? And when you look at your business, is it to provide fair and just wages for everyone? Or is it to try to take as much from them to give the most you can to your stockholders and yourself? Well, how are you thinking? Is it kingdom thinking? Or is it Sandy Wilson thinking? Centered on me. That's what we're called to do, is to multiply and to bless other people. Now lastly, If Jesus came to preach and He came to call, then we better be ready to respond to His preaching and His call. That seems to be basic, doesn't it? And first of all, let us notice that in verse 18, we are told at once they left their nets and followed Him. Now let me say, I don't think that it means that when we meet Jesus Christ savingly, and we really decided we want to follow Him with all of our lives, that it means you're going to make an occupational change. You already have the vocation. You don't need to change occupation in order to change vocation. Now you've already got the vocation regardless of your occupation. So most of the time what's being required of us is just like John the Baptist said to the soldiers. Just be a good soldier. Don't rip people off. Don't make false charges against them. If you're going to be a tax collector, he doesn't say, stop being an accountant, stop working for the government, No, he just says, don't collect any more than you have to. Be a good tax collector. And later on in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is speaking to a church in Corinth that has a bunch of slaves in it. And he even says, you could remain in the same, you ought to remain in the same condition you were when you were called, when you got your vocation. You just keep your same occupation. Now be a good slave. And now you not only work in the presence of your master to impress him, but you work because you have a new master, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're impressing Him. You're serving Him. And that's how your whole servanthood is changed and transformed. And He says to those who are free, keep your freedom. He says now to the slaves, if you get an opportunity to get free, take it. There's nothing wrong with switching your occupation, especially if it's from slavery. That's good. Take opportunities in the goodness of God and His creation that He gives you. But to fulfill your vocation, the ultimate thing is, Take what you've got and do it well to the glory of God. Now, what he's saying here in this case, however, is that Jesus was here physically. And when He comes back physically, we'll do the same thing. We'll drop our nets and follow Him. Now He's here spiritually. And He can go with you in your work, and He can go with you in your play. But in this case, He was here physically. And when He called them, they dropped their nets. Which is to say, at once they followed Him. When you say, hey, I need some time to think about this. or I'm not sure I want to do this right now. Listen, I understand this. It took me months and months and months of thinking about it to come to a conclusion. And for most men it does, for most thinking people. But just realize this. The whole time you're saying, let me think about it, that equals no. That's no. You say, well, not right now. That's no. Well, I'm not real sure. That's no. The only yes is at once. Because the only yes is one that recognizes this is the call from a king who owns the universe. And you see Him for who He is. And He has issued a firm and clear and clarion call to your heart to come and be with Him. Fellowship with Him. Give up the old lifestyle. Give yourself to His service. And it means now. Because of the greatness of who He is. So it must be at once. And there has to be, gentlemen, if you've been a believer for a while, sometimes you can let yourself get dull and listless. But what is the only appropriate way to follow Jesus Christ is with a continuing at oneness If I can put it that way. A continuing at oneness So that when you're doing your devotions in the morning... And he says that you should lay down your life for your wife and be kind to her and nurture her and you realize you said some sharp things to her. You don't wait till next week. There's an at once obedience to that. There's a readiness in your heart. And those of you who served in the military service, when, when the general gives an order, you don't say, ah, that's a really, is a nice idea. All right, let me think about that one. There's an at once-ness. Yes, sir. And right out the door and you execute that command. And Jesus Christ is a King. So His commands are to be executed at once. Because you've already settled the issue of who He is. You've already settled the issue that He's kind and gracious towards you. And now it's a matter of when, how high, how far. So there's an at onceness. Now, why is this important? I'll tell you why it's important. I've got about three minutes. So let, me, let me take it to describe this. This is so crucial for us to understand why our obedience from our hearts No matter what life we have, no matter what place in society we have, why this is so important. If you're looking at the first half of Mark's Gospel, remember last week we said you could divide it in half. First half, before Peter's high confession, you're the Christ. Second half, his passion. This is what Jesus did for us on the cross in Jerusalem. First half, largely in Galilee. Second half, largely in Jerusalem. Okay, first half is where we are now. That is, who is Jesus Christ? Well, you want to know who Jesus Christ is? Well, let me tell you. He's the one that casts out demons. At a very word. You want to know who Jesus Christ is? Well, let me tell you. He's the one who says a word. Be still. And the whole storm is automatically hushed. You want to know who Jesus Christ is? He's the one who raises the dead. Gives sight to the blind. Causes the lame to walk. That's who He is. And that's what Mark is telling us throughout Mark's first half of his Gospel. You want to know who He is? Let me show you who He is relative to the creation in which He had been placed. He's the Lord of the creation. But the greatest way in which the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed, and the most fabulous answer to the question, who is He? He is the one who calls sinful human men, and they obey Him at once. And that's the reason that you find three callings in Mark's Gospel, here in Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 3, and Mark chapter 6. Because the greatest demonstration of the glory of God is that men like you and myself, we would bow down to Him and show Him that the crown of His very creation, namely human beings, would bow before Him like the wind would cause trees to bow in a storm. We are the ones who respond to the King because we're sentient human beings given a mind, given a heart by God Himself so that we know when the King comes and we respond to Him. So the greatest demonstration in Memphis, Tennessee, that Jesus Christ is Lord is that those who claim to follow Him bow at once. It's the greatest miracle in this entire city. That's the reason it's so crucial for those of us who have a heart for Him that we're continually demonstrating His great glory by our simple obedience. So it's at once. And then notice, in, secondly, it's completely. That is, they left their nets. And we're told of James and John. They left their poor old daddy right there sitting in the boat with a hired man. Hey, sons, where are you going? (laughs) Leaving me with these nets? I mean, they had a family business. Probably probably passed down from generation to generation. You know, Zebedee and Sons. You know, fishing. And Zebedee and Sons now no longer is Zebedee and Sons. It's just poor old Zebedee. Old man, got his nets all by himself. Lost his partners, his own sons. Because this is to demonstrate something. That even the family business is contingent upon the advancement of the Kingdom of God. And there's nothing in a man's life that will take first loyalty. Not his wife, not his children, not his old man. Nothing. Jesus Christ comes first and He's King. He takes everything. Now, of course, you find out later on in the story that when you give your life to Christ, you become a better father and you become a better son and a better businessman and all the rest. But the only way you do is because you leave everything. It's complete devotion to Him. You say, I'm not sure I can do that. No, you can't. But you can give your heart to it and say, Lord, help me. Because I know this is the only appropriate response to You. Is right now, everything. At once. And completely. Let us pray. Father, thank You for the announcement of this great kingdom and for the King Himself who came to call us and to give us a good reason to come because the kingdom is here and we through repentance and faith may know you and draw near to you and have purpose in life that resonates with the cosmic purpose of the universe. And we would go out this door as men who know that we are called to glory. We're called to the kingdom. We're called to an intimate relationship and friendship with with the king of the universe. And everything that we do and say and even think today is a reflection of your glory. So help us, O God, who sent your Son to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And we pray in his name. Amen.